healthcare is broken, and the healthcare industry is not going to fix itself. Reconstructing Healthcare is a podcast series where we interview the rebel entrepreneurs working tirelessly to disrupt the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we break down everything that's wrong with the current healthcare system and provide you with a blueprint to create better results. Now, here's your host, Michael Maneri. All right. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Don Cornelis from Claim Informatics. Don, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. You bet. So here's the game plan. What we seek to do on this show is challenge status quo healthcare purchasing and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to either improve value for their employees or lower healthcare costs. Sound like something you'd like to help with? Oh, most definitely. So to get us started, I'm going to read a brief bio about you and, and Claim Informatics so our listeners have a little bit of context about who they're listening to, and then we'll get into it. Sound good? Perfect. So Don Cornelis is the co-founder and chief transparency officer of Claim Informatics. With more than 25 years of dedication to combating improper payments, fraud, waste, and abuse, Dawn is an expert in the field of healthcare claim audit and recovery. And as a result of her efforts, hundreds of millions of dollars of improper payments have been identified through pre- and post-payment programs. In 1993, Don co-founded the first audit and recovery firm and served for 17 years as the Chief Operating Officer of Claim Recovery Services, while representing some of the best Fortune 100 companies. After that, she was the Chief Operating Officer of Claim Return for three years. Over the course of her career, Don's efforts have supported national and local organizations spanning financial, healthcare, union, and government sectors. Anything else you'd like to, uh, to mention there, Don? Golly, that was a whole lot, wasn't it? <laughs> You know, I started out about 30 years ago, and it started off with looking at somebody's statement due balance, and it's been a blur ever, ever since then, but it's been quite an honor working in this industry, lots of good folks, and uh, we just appreciate every day. You just mentioned 30 years. Let's, let's go back. I mean, how, how did you get in this industry, you know, in the first place, and, and what led you to prompting, uh, or rather starting Claim Informatics? Yeah, so you know, I was I was young and uh, starting a, a young family, and decided what's the best firm you can go work for, and that was at that time, you know, working for insurance companies or banking, right? It's a great industry. So, jumped into the insurance industry and got real good at figuring out how technology sometimes works and sometimes it doesn't work. And mm-hmm. in doing so, I got involved uh, processing claims and. As I was processing claims, I could see lots of claims being incorrectly processed. And I would go to the system configuration specialist to tell them, hey, I think we got a problem. And they would, they would say, no, go back, to your, go back to your desk. You're not, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, I eventually ended up becoming a system configuration specialist because I figured I was going to be able to fix things moving forward. And from that, that's what led into, you know, going on the other side of the market. And I actually went to a, a Fortune 500 company. I said, look, it, you guys are bleeding. You're hemorrhaging dollars right now. And I know where they're at. We can, we can actually reduce your cost by 10 to 15% if you hire me. And they did. And that became the beta site for auditing healthcare claims on the other side, being a plan administrator for a, a commercial group. Fortune 500 company. Cool. And that, that became the beta site. And after a couple of years, realizing that I'm not going to be able to fix all the problems, I realized, well, somebody needs to do something about it. So that's when we started at a young age, the first audit and recovery firm uh, back in 1993, as you mentioned. So that's kind of how we got our, our feet wet. And it's just uh, 
seems, you know, this is three adult children later and five grandchildren later. Here we are talking about something that um, our team, not just myself, but our team that's worked together for decades. It's very passionate for us because we see there's a lot of wrong that goes on and we're just here simply to tell the truth. So. Well, we're definitely going to get into that. And by the way, you look way too young to have five grandchildren, but uh, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. So let's start this interview at the macro level, and then we'll kind of dive into uh, the Claim Informatics product and service. As you know, we have a healthcare system that just is insatiable when it comes to consuming more and more of our, our disposable income. A recent uh, Kaiser Family Foundation report indicated the average family premium is about 20500 with employees contributing an average of uh, 6000 of that, plus, the, plus out-of-pocket expenses. And so with the average deductible now, you know, well over $1,500, you know, it's no wonder that over a third of people with insurance have difficulty affording their premiums and out-of-pocket expenses. So tell me, in your words, I mean, what is wrong with our healthcare system and, and, and why do you think costs continue to increase like they do? Well, we're not going to be able to tackle all of the problems, right? But from our perspective, we speak strictly from data, right? What is the data telling us? And having three decades, right, in the data, we've watched and have seen the changes that have taken place in the marketplace and actually can identify what those key drivers are all about. So we're strictly speaking from our experience in the data, Mm -hmm. and it's about what that data tells us. What's the story in the data that we have seen? And right now, the data doesn't really have a very good story to tell. In the form of waste, when we talk about waste, whether it's unnecessary procedures being performed or egregious contracts that just pay way too much for services that we're still trying to wrap our heads around that one. But, you know, if you look at waste alone, they, they used to talk about it being a 10% number, right? Fraud, waste, and abuse, mm-hmm. 10%. That would equate to about $370 billion. Well, now, and this is not from something that we've created, it's the Journal of American Medical Association recently reported after their research that they believe it's more of a 30% number. And that becomes very significant if we look at the increases that we've seen. If it's 30%, we're saying basically there's $1.1 trillion that shouldn't be there. And when you look at that, it's like, well, what is that made up of? What is that $1.1 trillion made up of? I mean, that comes down to, when I do the math, that's about a billion dollars a day that we're simply burning. We're burning the money, right? And it's not really going to the providers that are actually rendering the service. It's not helping the member, the patient that's actually going to the doctor or to the hospital to have that service performed. There's a lot of middlemen involved, I think, that that have created the 30%, we'll call it, waste, whether that's in form of just, you know, egregious contracts or not having a system in place that just does a check and balance. Mm-hmm. Like, does anybody ever really look at their health claims data? We see the numbers at the end of the year. We write that check every month. But is anybody really looking at what we're paying for? And well, how we're I think, for it, so. Yeah, I think the answer is 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 no in the context of of what you mean by by looking at it, and that's probably a good transition into what you guys do at Claim Informatics. So so tell us a little bit about the product and the service and what problem you're you're attempting to solve and address. Right. So we're all about integrity, just making sure that payments are accurate according to what everybody agreed to at the beginning of the day. And that's simply what we do. We identify where an incorrect payment was made 
And there's different reasons why incorrect payments are made. They vary. Some of it could be 100% preventable. And I, and I like to use the best way of explaining what we do is uh, kind of like if we look at the latest, the $218 billion stimulus check that went out, right? Mm-hmm. All the stimulus checks that went out, everybody got their 1200 or some people got less. But even in doing that, when they sent out the money, when the government sent out that money, right, they realized that there was $1.1 million in stimulus payments that went to people that were no longer in this universe. They had passed on, right? Yes, yes. And so they we're talking about folks that are no longer living that $1.1 million went out to. I look at that like that's 100% preventable, right? It should not have happened. Yeah. And we see the same type of errors, not, not like that, of course, but well, they are, they are there are fraudulent cases that have to do with that. But it's just simply looking at what makes sense and what are we doing up front to make sure that we contain that. We don't look at identifying improper payments as a savings. Not when you look at claim a dollar that should never have been paid. It's not a savings if you return that dollar. It's it's money that should have never been paid in the first place. So that that entire ecosystem with regards to that has been turned upside down and now there's perverse incentives that have been created. Getting back to the word that you used, integrity. Integrity means truth. And so what we're talking about when we talk about payment integrity, things are being paid for that that should not be paid for in the first place. Is that correct interpretation? That's correct. Okay. Most of the time, you know, an employer, you know, contracts with an insurance company and or or a third-party administrator, they're assuming that, you know, most insurance carriers have processes in place or procedures to not pay things that they shouldn't. So is that is that not true? Yeah, that's true. Every large payer, even TPAs, they have what we call prepayment programs that might capture billing errors. And then they have post-payment review programs that are supposed to capture, you know, errors that you find on the back end after a claim has been paid. So there are payment integrity programs that every carrier across the United States has. The effectiveness of those programs depend on how much leakage there is, right? So if you have an effective filter program on the front end, you're going to find less, right, on the post-payment review. But the numbers are significant and they haven't changed. And that's the concern Mm. that I see. In today's technology, we should not be seeing that 2 to 3% bleed that we see hemorrhage out across the board, no matter who the carrier is or who the payer is. These are things that could be prevented, absolutely 100% preventable. So we have to question, right? the big elephant in the room. Why is that? Why is it that that we're still seeing two to 3% drop out when these are things that could be 100% preventable? So tell us a little bit about your process. So how, how are you engaging with an employer and their, their TPA? How does the process work? Yeah, so the typical process is first, we need to evaluate the ASO agreement to make sure that there's no barriers within the ASO agreement that it would allow a company like Claim Informatics to ascertain uh, 100% of all data points that allows us to basically review every payment that went out. So in order to do that right, you have to have the data. So we need to make sure that the ASO agreement allows our clients to ascertain their own data because it is their own data. Our clients, by the way, just to mention, most of them are self-funded and um, are under ERISA guidelines, right? So with that said, a review of the ASO is the first step. The second step is once we ascertain the data, 
we basically re-adjudicate claims. So we're not just like running an algorithm to find out if we think something's been paid wrong. We're actually re-adjudicating the claims and turning on the rule sets that are that are applicable to that specific carrier network, by the way. Mm-hmm. There's a big distinction with that. And once we have the results, then we're able to show the client with their own data. It's not a PowerPoint. It's like, here's the data. These are your claims. This is our processing system. And this is what we've been able to capture. And these are the areas that we can actually go in and recover the funds. So if you think about the current system right now, if somebody identifies an overpayment, there's a process. They send out a letter. They notify the provider of a reconsideration. And they have to follow all of the ERISA appeal guidelines that mm-hmm. are applicable. So we have to follow the same guidelines that a claims office has to adhere to. And uh, we actually make the deposits on behalf of our clients. But one of the unique things that we've done, and this, is, this goes back to my 30 years ago, is that this program is member-centric, meaning we're also not just identifying where the plan might have been overpaid, the plan overpaid the dollars, but where the member may be overpaid as well because if you think about it, if there's services being billed that should not have been billed, maybe yeah. they're unbundling. You've heard about unbundling before where yep. maybe they're billing for two services and it should only be billing for one. The members, the patients are being charged. Every time a approval happens and they pay that claim, based on the contract terms of that network, that patient's liable for that amount if it's approved, that payment's approved. So we look at the largest sector that we look at is what's the impact to the member? Yeah. And in the form of liability, remember you mentioned that out of pocket yep. increasing. We're now seeing the significant impact right now because of the increase in out of pockets, how much these overpaid dollars are impacting not just the plan, but also that member, that member that doesn't have the extra $500 in coinsurance in their bank, right? Right. So right. it becomes very personal to us when we identify things. So part of our recovery, we notify the provider and we actually make sure, look, if Mr. Smith paid $500 and he should have only paid $20, we're going to make sure on our notice that the member liability is made whole as well. So you're high level, you're taking historical data, which could be 24 months, 36, 48 months, whatever, two to three years. And you're re-adjudicating all the claims and you're finding, you're finding errors in saying, you know, of the X dollars of claims that you paid over that time period, here's the amount that really shouldn't have been paid. And then from there, you go back and you try to collect from the provider on the employer's behalf and the employee's behalf. That's correct. Okay. Got it. How far back do you guys typically go? For recoveries, we typically only go back two years. You know, we're not about going and slamming some provider for some billing errors that they were unaware of the last three years, but we do get data for three years. The reason why we ask for three years worth of data is because it allows us to see the historical profile of of providers that may be crossing the line that we, that we determine based on our algorithms that they're way beyond the benchmarks of their, of their peers. Right. And that's why it's important to have, you know, an ocean of data versus a lake of data. It allows us to do more of an assessment. So if there's any Folks out there that are pushing uh, compliance and they're, you know, they're, when I say crossing the line, meaning there's, there's more unbundling and you can almost see it uh, years go by because there's something in this market that most people aren't aware of that I speak often of is the revenue optimization market. So we're kind of like in a perfect storm. Remember, I started 30 years ago identifying errors. Today, we actually see more coding and billing errors happening 
where they're non, it's non-compliance of the rule sets. That's what we call it. And we find more entities are, are crossing the line and not compliant, not so much because they don't know, but they've hired firms to help optimize their revenue. And sometimes those firms cross the line of compliance, meaning they are there to optimize that provider's revenue. So maybe if I start adding this or I add an additional modifier to increase our reimbursement, it's going to increase revenue, right? Right. But it's the wrong way of increasing revenue. It's okay to have a revenue optimization firm. Just make sure that an entity is compliant and that they're billing for all services that they rendered as well. That's yeah. important. Yeah. But it's not, when we see it on the flip side and we're seeing that that's having a major impact across all of our plans and the carriers can't keep up with it, then we've got a problem. We've got a big problem and it's going to bust. Quite frankly, we don't think that most of the national carriers are addressing it. Because again, they're on the other side and they've got to, they've got to make sure that their network is happy, right? That they have mm -hmm. a happy network <laughs> mm -hmm. and that there's no provider abrasion. We're often, that, off, that word often comes up in many discussions when we're, when we're discussing results. You know, it's like, yeah, we, we agree with your findings, but man, this is going to have a hit on our, on our providers. And the first comeback that I have is what about that impact it had on that member? That's insightful because who do they really think their customers are? <laughs> you know, is it the provider that's in their network or is it the actual payer? Let's dive a little bit deeper on the, some of the things you find in the historical claims review. Now, you just mentioned one item, which would be strategic billing. Is that a situation where like I go into the emergency room and maybe I have, you know, a broken nose and instead of coding it as a level one, because for a broken nose, what are they going to do? They're going to give me Tylenol and send me home, right? But instead of coding it as a level one ER visit, they code it as a level five. So what would that produce in terms of different charge levels? Well, it's, it's significant. In the commercial market, it is significant. It's the difference of a level one of a reimbursement of maybe $250 to a $3,000 level five. So the significance, there's a perverse incentive that we have. If we add, if we, if we code this thing at a higher level, we're going to get reimbursed more. Well, let's look at that broken nose. Did he have any chest pains with that? Maybe we need to run an EKG, right? So there's going to be different games that go on. But what we see, and this is an episode of CareLogic that we created about eight years ago, because we, we know that there's a big problem with upcoding. Upcoding is simply saying, I'm going to build this, this other code here. It's kind of the same thing, but I'm going to get paid more money. And so it's our, you know, and it's because of the way we have set up the payment system, right? The higher the code, the higher the reimbursement. So with that said, ERs, especially in, in knowing that the pandemic, we're going to see a lot of this go on because of the pandemic, a lot of hospitalizations, ER visits, you're going to see a more of a prevalence of upcoding. We already see it right now. We've got groups that are high as 80 to 90% of their ER visits. They're billing nothing but the highest code there is. And that's simply wrong. Yeah, and it's wrong. fraudulent. And it's fraudulent. Identifying that the, the way that you detect it is you review the medical record that it's either going to support that service that was billed or it's not going to support it. And 85% of what we identify on with regards to upcoding is specific to ER rooms right now. It's a hit meaning we identify it, it's been over upcoded, and we collect money. We actually had one physician group, uh, ER physician group, tell us that, because we, we told them, say, look, we just looked at all your claims, and you guys billed 99285. 
He builds the highest code across the board for every patient. For everyone, no matter what. No matter what. Yeah, no matter what. Broken nose, uh, stub, we, had, we had a stubbed toe. We had um, uh, things where it's just a cough. You know, folks get, it's three o'clock in the morning, their child's coughing. I don't want to wait. I got to go to the ER, that kind of thing. Yeah. And they, they came out and said, yeah, we had a billing company that we hired and we just realized that's what they were doing. We all of a sudden started getting letters and audits and that exposed, you know, that exposed that entire professional entity to, you know, federal sanctions and state sanctions had this gotten out with the Medicare and Medicaid book of business, right? So we, we also look at what we do when we identify, we're also educating providers we want to mitigate your risk as well. Because some of them really do not even know what is happening with their with their billings. Yeah. For the yeah. most part, they don't. Because there's like private equity firms that own a lot of ER groups, right? Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. You've got a lot of gaming that goes on in that. And like I said, Michael, what we identify today compared to what we've seen, you know, I'll call it, let me just say 10 years ago, it's so much different. We see so much more abuse today. And I just don't know why that is and it's because we're just not tackling the issue the way we yeah. should be yeah and so so we talked about this sort of strategic billing you know talked about errors right finding errors what other categories or, or, or examples of things that you yeah. find can you share with us well we identify there's six different levels that we identify and these are the types of errors that there are out there so i'll explain that billing and coding that's on the professional side or the uh, facility side they're actually billing the codes right to get paid yep. whenever somebody sends a bill in they're assuming that's the correct code of service that took place so we identify 37 percent of what we identify is the incorrect billing got it not following the payment uh, uh, rule sets that are applicable to coding and billing the next layer is 25 percent of contracted rates are paid wrong. I didn't say that very loud for a reason. 25% of what we identify, the incorrect rate that the entity agreed to between the carrier and the, and the uh, provider is incorrectly processed. And that happens, different reasons why that happens. They loaded yeah. the contract wrong, wrong or they didn't load the contract right or it's a provider maintenance issue, but many things happen where just the wrong rate was overpaid. Was and it's not and underpaid, that, overpaid. <laughs> overpaid. And and that's happening about twenty five percent of our findings. Mm -hmm. And that's on the TPA side where they're yeah. making a mistake on what should be paid. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. So it usually it's a network, right? Uh, that does the repricing. Mm -hmm. uh, some TPAs are responsible for pricing, but most networks do their own pricing. So it's from the it's directly from the network pricing. Okay, got it. Got it. And then we have uh, what we call 18% uh, is about payment guidelines. So this is where, you know, you have a rule set that says, hey, if a surgeon bills three codes, three surgical procedures, this is how you're going to pay it. You allow 100%, 50%, 50%. They call it payment reduction. So there's a lot of errors just deploying payment guidelines. And payment guidelines are usually set up in a payment system. The configuration, just like contract rates, they're loaded mm -hmm. into a system yep. and they're configured. So if there's a mistake that happens when I load a contract rate or I load a payment guideline, there's going to be a there's going to be an error, right? Whereas the billing and coding that I mentioned has to do with the provider billing, right? Yep. So you can see the distinction on where the causation occurs between is it the provider or is it the TPA that's processing the claim or is it the network? pricing a claim. 
Then you have um, what we call our the summary plan description. So we run all of the edits that are applicable under the plan document, and that's about mm -hmm. 3%. Our episode of care is something that's new that nobody even runs, whether in prepayment and postpayment. It's very unique to the market. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're identifying where, okay, you build for this code here, for this procedure, but when we look at the whole episode of care and we look at what the hospital build, the anesthesiologist build, the surgeon build, the pathologist build, we're like, guess what? That, that one right there is standing out, that outlier. For example, we had a case where the hospital billed for a coma and all the other providers did not have that down as, as a diagnosis. Well, that specific diagnosis, by the way, increased the reimbursement for the inpatient contracted rate by $100,000. So it. we simply looked at it, the system flagged it and said, huh. And then we looked at the way the methodology, what the methodology is that's used in pricing that claim. And lo and behold, once we corrected it, it was a $100,000 overpayment for one little diagnosis code. One would look at it and say, well, so what? It's a diagnosis code. Yeah, that code drives reimbursement for inpatient claims. And there's a lot of upcoding that goes on when it comes yep. to inpatient hospital claims. You can read yep. about it in the news. You hear about some of the lawsuits going on right now with some of the national carriers. And I'm not pointing any fingers in any means when I talk about national carriers. It just happens they own the market, right? So yep. the reality is, you know, they're also, you know, being looked at from they get paid for Medicare Advantage plans. They get paid based on the severity of illness of a patient. So if the carrier is adding diagnoses like a coma or adding a diagnosis like person's a diabetic, that's going to increase a payment, period, right? And if our carriers are doing it, you have to wonder, what are they doing about their own network upcoding? So it's just, it's up there, it's out there, everyone knows about it, the, you know, the reports are out there as far as the questioning of upcoding, but upcoding doesn't just happen from hospitals and facilities. It's also happening within the same pairs that are responsible for processing our elderly claims, we'll call it the most yep. vulnerable, by the way, yep. right? Yep. So, yep. so yeah, lots well, of percentages here, different fraud, waste, abuse. I didn't mention, but that's about eleven percent. When I say fraud, waste, abuse, by the way, people like to throw that around a lot. They, you know, we call it the F word. A lot, most of what we identify is just it's complex. Billing is complex. Folks aren't necessarily out there to rip off somebody. It's just. But if you're if you're leaving your business up to somebody else and you're saying, go optimize my revenue, there's going to be some funky business that goes on, isn't there? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, there's 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 lots of misaligned incentives within the healthcare delivery and, and supply chain. You know, this conversation, you know, speaks to some of those. So after you've gone and you've done the analysis, right, and you've you've gone through these six categories and, and identified the amount of, of, of overpayment. What is the uh, deliverable back to the client and what's the next step after that? Yeah, so we have basically three different models, right? So one model where we identify and we actually are assigned to do the recovery. So that's, that's going to be a different deliverable, which would be, you know, they have full access to our portal so that they can see actual dollars that we're recovering, what's been identified, what's been appealed. So we give, we believe in 100% transparency. So they're given a web portal access 
where they can see the activity that goes on with their account yep. when it's in full recovery mode. And then we have the other model where it may be a national carrier that precludes their clients from actually reaching out to network providers and doing recovery. So we have a safe harbor prog program with that that we've just started up and we're proud to talk about uh, that is basically gonna be able to screen the claims, identify overpayments, report monthly reports that go to their administrator that identifies overpayments and look at causation. The key thing is we don't want to continue to find and identify overpayments. We want to say, look, we know why your system's doing it. This is what it's doing. And that's how we, you know, our claim intelligence platform isn't just to identify and recover and track all the findings, but we also, it also helps us identify the causation so that we can go to that, that system configuration team at the carrier level and say this is what we're seeing do you see what we're seeing now that's not a conversation that happens right off the bat you have to get their credit you have to get the credibility yep. established at that yep. point but once you have they're like you know most groups are going to be very thankful for that because it's something that we've identified that they have yet to identify so different deliverables depending on the different model but those are the two main models that we have what is the typical response from providers when you notify them that, that they've built the plan incorrectly? And if they don't want to pay the employer back, does the employer have any recourse? Yes, they do. So first of all, again, we have to follow all of the ERISA guidelines, right? We have to notify the provider. One of the things that's unique about Claim Informatics, because we've been doing recovery for a very long time, we actually decided we need to give the providers detail, extensive detail as to why we're collecting this money, which allows them to change their behavior. Because what's going to happen is this two, three payments maybe that we go after for a commercial group, they might get hit over the head by Medicaid or by CMS on a larger recovery scale if they don't fix what's, what they're doing. And yep. typically, most again, a majority of what we're identifying is something that they've agreed to up front. First of all, if it's unbundling, it's unbundling. They already know that rule set. They already know that those two procedures can't be billed. So they're not going to dispute that. Yep. If it's a contracted rate, they're not going to dispute that. If the findings are correct, it's not going to be disputable. So we have less than a 5% appeal rate. So very few claims actually get appealed from the provider. And if they provide us additional information that supports, oh, this claim is not an error, we will do exactly what any claim office would do. We will go ahead and reject, uh, accept that appeal and deny our, and correct yep. the records to make sure that everybody knows this claim is not an error. It was paid correctly. Additional information supports that. If they don't provide additional information and they, they're not providing anything to help us support their position, because at, at the end of the day, if a provider calls us, we don't think we're overpaid, we want to know that we're wrong. I would rather be wrong than them, right? Yeah. It's all about we want them to be right. <laughs> yep. And so that's our mindset, by the way, It's to protect the providers as well. Once they, we decide, look, you've not provided anything, these are the terms, here's the policy, we give them all the information that they signed up for that they agreed to, whether it's a payment policy that's at play here, or it's a billing and coding rule set that's applicable, we provide them all that information. And then still at the end of the day, they decide not to send the money back in, the client has a right to offset. And that's within most provider agreements as well, Got it. that if Got an it. error is made, a contract would allow them to offset dollars. So in that example, let's just say they've overpaid by $1,000. And so the next $1,000 in claim expenditures would just be, they wouldn't get paid. It would be credited towards that overpayment. That's correct. Wow. Yeah. 
They, okay. Yes, that's right. correct. They, they retract future payments is what they do. Yes. Now, what about the scenario where, you know, you find a provider with just clearly egregious, mm-hmm. you know, or fraudulent, you know, billing practices? I mean, what can an employer do to address that situation? Right. So again, and it's going to come down to who their payer is and who their administrator is for the large BUCAs, we'll call it, um, Blue Cross, United Cigna, the large carriers. They have an SIU unit typically that takes uh, complaints, that that takes filings from employers that are calling up saying, hey, we think we might have some uh, abusive situation going on here. Mm-hmm. We have, well, what we do is we don't just say, hey, we think, we give them the data. So we, in our experience that we've had over the last 12 months is we've actually provided data to large carriers to support the position that this provider needs to be looked at, they need to be flagged and stop paying them until we figure this out. Yep. <laughs> That's ultimately what, what happens. In some cases though, it takes a while. It takes a while for the carrier to actually get to that case and open it. So depending on, again, the way the client is set up, if they have a TPA that they're using, that they have full they have full rights to say, hey, let's flag this provider here on out. We need to have medical records submitted with that claim until we've been able to vet this thing out. Then they can turn on and flag providers and say, no payments are going to be made unless they provide, you know, X, Y, Z. Mm-hmm. And usually it's, you know, in most cases, it's going to be support documentation that says this is why we bill modifier 25, 100% of the time. The, the people that we identify egregious behaviors on, it's out there and they know they're doing it, by the way. Yeah. So one of the other steps that we do is we contact that provider and we let them know who we represent, who our client is, and that moving forward that their claims will be under scrutiny and that we are not going to sit idly by and allow this behavior to continue And that if they have any medical support documentation that can help explain this unusual, highly unusual behavior, then that they send that to us and we have clinicians that review that information. So everything's done by the book and according to the law. I like that though. You, you call them and you say, hey, we know that you're, you're engaging in bad behavior and oh, by the way, we're watching you. And if it's really bad behavior, Michael, we'll turn it over. We'll also um, report it to the medical board. And um, back in my day, I, I almost stopped just sending things off to the medical board because it took forever and a century. And then we finally had, this goes way back in time, we finally had a case and it uh, had to do with the Russian labs, actually. We were, uh, for the employer group that we were representing, we were all over it and we were, you know, screaming out loud, like, there's some fraud going on here. And they called it the rolling labs. I don't know if you even recall that. It goes way back in uh we, we were spot on with our findings and uh, medical board took that case and, and turned out to be some big findings on that. And that went up the chain up to the DOJ and FBI looked at all. Because, you know, once a provider is billing, they're not just picking and choosing who they want to commit fraud to. They're doing it across the board. And I'll point to any article that you hear. And I do a lot of posting, as you know, on DOGA cases, Department of Justice, CMS lawsuits that are out there, some of the fraud cases that have been prosecuted or settled. But you hardly ever will read an article on some large commercial group got their money back on some fraud case. Right? Yeah. Because they don't. don't. You don't. Yeah, they don't. You, you read that. Yeah, you have to ask yourself, like, do you think they're only, uh, you know, do you think they're only unbundling their charges for the government health plans? No, they're doing it across the board. I think the best impact is calling that provider up and saying, we're watching you. We see it. If anything, they're not going to, if anything, they might be, be cautious on how they bill at least our client. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we want this behavior to stop and be corrected. Yeah. Yep. And you have so, to have accountability for that. So 
For sure. For sure. So when you look at all these potential things that you can find in aggregate, I mean, how much savings are out there, you know, for, for your standard employer, you know, how much of the claim dollar that's going out the door is considered improper payments? We always like to point to statistics that are out there by some of the large carriers. So it's their own statistics. So that's instead of saying, you know, what's claim informatics statistics, they're right in line with what, what the statistics are like companies like Optum, you know, parent company being United. They're one of the very largest uh, payment integrity, big box vendors that are out there involved with other things, but they are involved with payment integrity. You know, they've already quoted between three and 7%. And that's exactly what we're finding across the board. We had one client that was 18%, by the way, but between three and 7%, percent of healthcare claims are inaccurately paid. And that's the year that's that's every year. That's every year. Every year, annual reasons ranging from just mistakes, right? Mistakes on system configuration or intentional fraud where you've got, you know, abusive billing going on. And that could equate to, I look at that and I say, well, a loss of the, the insurance carriers put it at about $6 per claim they lose when they have to, that's the cost to the payers to reprocess a claim, right? To fix it. So there's like a loss of $6 per claim. That's about for a million members. That's a lot of money, right? And then they go on further. Basically they're saying one in five medical claims submitted are processed incorrectly. And we see that in order to dictate one in five claims, you basically got to pull every medical record. So it's impossible to do that. Right. Yep. Yep. But this, but the numbers are there. And what's interesting, the reason why I'm putting up those, those numbers right now is because the mindset in payment integrity is, Hey, there's three to 7%. We know it. And we have a product that's going to fix it. And it's costing the payers right now $6. So we really want to catch this on the front end, right? So you don't have to reprocess claims. But their mindset is all about what it's costing the administrative cost, the $15.5 billion, we'll call it. If one point one in five claims are incorrectly processed, yeah. that yep. for a million people, that's about $15.5 billion in administrative cost. But there's no mention anywhere in any of the uh, payment integrity marketing materials that are out there about the cost to the plan or the member. Right. So, and, know, if I'm, and if I'm a payer, that's what I care about. If I'm a payer, all I care about is the bottom line. Right, exactly. You're right, right. So your mindset's going to be at, can I make money off of this? And they do. It's something that doesn't people don't like to talk about. But, you know, most payers, and, and it's okay to have a payment integrity program and have a program that pays it has to pay for the cost of performing that program, right? Yes, of course. I believe you have to pay for a service. Yes. So I'm not saying there, but but should you get paid for a mistake that you made? No, no, I don't. I think guess so. that's the million dollar question. <laughs> so so if there's three to seven percent savings, right, or, or things that shouldn't have been paid, when you're tasked with recovering that seven percent, you know, on average, how much are you able to get back for the employer? For our, our tenure track record is at 80%. So we have an 80% recovery rate. And the reason why there's a 20% that's kind of out there is because, you know, we'll find that, oh man, you know, this contract right here only allows the network to go after that provider within six months. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, we yeah. might have like $300,000. It's like, well, you know, that was like 12 months ago, but their contract says too bad, too sad. You have to find it. But again, that comes down to the error type too. Yeah. If it's unbundling or incorrectly coding, all li- all time limits are off. They're yeah. meaning you can't apply a time limit to that. But if it's like a 
um, you know, a payment error because the contracted rate was paid wrong. Believe it or not, there are silent agreements that allow providers, if they don't, if they don't capture it anyway, and nobody comes knocking at the door in six months, they allow the providers to keep that money. Yeah, that's terrible. My head still shakes on that one, but it yeah. is what it is. What we haven't talked about so far is fee structure. You know, how does it work for you guys? Do you, you know, I, I know in this space there's a number of ways to do it. PEPM, uh, percentage of savings, you know, what's, what's your fee structure model? Right. So first and foremost, again, it has to be a model that's within the ASO agreement rights, right? So we always have to review the ASO agreement and determine if there's any limitations to that. Um, but for the most part, if it's a TPA and it's not a large uh, BUCA carrier, we're able to do it uh, risk-free at a contingency rate. Mm -hmm. uh, that makes sense. And then ours is set up, though, not just flat across the board. As we continue to find and identify and recover, our rates actually go down. We don't want to be one of those egregious behaviors in the marketplace that is adding to the cost, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we've set it up so that our fees actually go down as we, as we um, actually uh, perform more for the client. And so it's set up that way, but mainly our, our main one that people are really interested in now is that we can have a per member per month with a small contingency fee. That way the client is retaining mostly about 80 to 70% of the, of the dollars that are deposited. And I really like that model myself. It makes sense for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So there sounds like there's some flexibility there. Absolutely. One of the things we haven't talked about uh, so far is employer fiduciary responsibility. Do, do you want to comment on that and how uh, Claim Informatics, how your service supports that? Yeah. Um, so uh, fiduciary responsibility under any ERISA plan, you have you know certain responsibilities. Everybody is kind of, everybody gets hit over the head with that. Everybody wants to use that hammer. Hey, you're a fiduciary now. You've got this responsibility. You know, and you're talking to a guy that's running a manufacturing shop, right? And you're telling the CEO, like, you've got to be a fiduciary. So we, we decided, we created a safe, what we call a safe harbor program that allows at least their claims to be looked at. Uh, to review, analyze, identify if there's any problems, and it's done monthly. So they can sit, sit back in their chair and know when they're signing off on their reports that they've fulfilled their fiduciary responsibility every year, that that's actually happening, okay? So some think that they've assigned it by being having a TPA process their claims or having you know a, a large carrier process their claims that their fiduciary responsibility stops. And that can be so further from the truth. That is not the truth. You can see it in most of the recent lawsuits that are being filed right now, uh, we call them ERISA lawsuits, and there's many of them coming up. Uh, they're starting to rear its ugly head right now. Yep. We've been trying to get the word out to let plan sponsors know you're going to be held responsible when somebody comes knocking on the door with some class action lawsuit because some carrier decided to do cross-plan offsets, for example, across all of your data. And the client's going to go, what's cross-plan offsetting? I have no idea what you're even talking about. So fiduciary responsibility, I look at it differently in the fact only coming from a self-funded employer and having been a plan administrator. Folks like to say, you're the fiduciary, but I'm like, well, heck, I'm, I work for an aerospace company. I don't know what you're talking about. We've created a program that says, let us do that. And we're, we have zero conflict of interest. You have to have parties that have zero conflict of interest. Um, because there is a lot of that in our industry, right? Yep. So um, at least have your claims reviewed. Even if it's limited data, have somebody look at something, but don't simply sit back and think that looking at 200 claims for a claim sample is going to meet that responsibility. 
It's simply not. Not with the lawsuits that we see right now, Michael, Yeah. coming up around the border. There's some very large ones. And some of it has to do with how could you allow your plan to get defrauded like that? Where were your steps? What did you do to make sure that you were doing something to check the carrier to make sure that they were doing something, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so there's certain things that you can do too. So if there's anything that's going to be uh, a takeaway for today's call podcast is uh, employers can simply just start asking for reports from their administrators saying, hey, I'm going to raise my hand. I'd like to see what did you identify on prepayment edits? So what did you deny that your system is capturing up front, mm-hmm. right, to stop them bundling and upcoding and all that? And then what are you doing on the back end? What postpayment review? Because you simply can't capture everything on the front end, by the way. Yeah. That's just impossible. So, you know, what, what is that carrier doing? What do they have in place that is protecting that client's book of business? Not, not the carrier's book of business, but that client's book of business. Yep. You did draw an interesting delineation there between what you guys do and and what a lot of self-funded employers do, which is every three years, you know, do a, you know, a claims audit. But it's typically a sample of, of data and really just making sure that the claims were paid according to the the plan document. It's it's plan document keywords apples yeah. to oranges as far as what you guys do. Right. Absolutely. And folks need to look, I mean, a second takeaway, I always try to get these two in, review your ASO agreement and actually review the sections of what your rights are to review. I I hate to use the word audit, but most of the ASO agreements, they have uh, performance audits. They say, look, do a performance audit. And if we don't meet the certain criteria, we'll pay back some money. So they're called performance audits. And those are for a reason. They have a purpose, by the way. And that's fine, but you're just reviewing the performance of that carrier. You're not reviewing the performance of whether claims are getting paid wrong or right. You're just reviewing, did they pay the claims timely? That's right. They meet other criteria. Exactly. It is is different. It is different. And I would say many self-insured employers are doing a periodic, you know, claims audit, if you will, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, but they, very few employers, self-insured employers are doing payment integrity in the way that you guys are doing it. That's correct. Yeah. Well, hey, Don, I'm looking at the clock here. If there was one question that I should have asked you, but I didn't, what would it be? <laughs> well, I don't know. You just stumbled me on that one. I would, you know, I would, I would say this, that what, what do we see as far as change and transformation moving forward that can um, basically stop this hemorrhage that we are very aware of? Um, you know, what, what do we see moving forward? And so that would be the question. And I guess I'm going to answer that now, right? Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Um, We look at, look, it's all about transparency and accountability. And we're really excited, Michael, about the legislation that's out there that are, are forcing the hands of some really big organizations, right? I mean, and we're here to support American Hospital Association, American Medical Association, but we're here to support them in the right way. So we have some l- large legislation that's that's getting passed. It's one of the biggest things that's on the national platform right now about transparency yep. and accountability. And if people just started doing this, one thing, whatever decision this market makes moving forward or whatever position you hold or anybody else that's in the insurance industry holds, make sure whatever decision you make moving forward, it's in the best interest of that member, of that patient, 
that's you and I, brother, right? It's you yep. and I, it's our neighbor, it's our mother, it's our auntie, it's our uncle. If everyone in the industry started to just make that right decision and what's in the best interest of people, we would not have a $3.7 trillion problem. We would not have a problem getting access to data. We would not have a problem talking about what the data speaks for itself, right? Yep. So that's all. Uh, that's simply stated, I guess, and I, I'll always stick to that. I love it. I love it. Well, Don, on behalf of our listeners and myself, I want to thank you for joining us today. Been a fun conversation. Certainly, I think something that, that needs more exposure. So great conversation. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. And thank you for the great work that you do out there, Michael. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to Claim Informatics website and contact information. Lastly, we welcome your feedback on the content we're bringing to you on the show. Let us know what you think with a review. It's super easy and takes five seconds. Just open up the podcast app on your phone, go to our show's page, scroll down to the bottom of the page and let us know what you think with the review. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.